0: Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at SumatiSparks.com. And tonight I'm honored to have a very distinguished guest. Marsha Baczynski, or Marsha B, is probably best known as the co-founder of The Cuddle Party, She's an expert at teaching communication in the areas of relationships, sex, and intimacy. Her primary mission is to help women and the people who love them to overcome shame and get in touch with what they truly want, romantically, sexually, and relationally, even if it's off the beaten path. Her Good Girl Recovery Program and the Make Hot Play Happen Workshop are two of her offerings to help with that objective. Marsha has been interviewed and quoted in numerous media, including People, Newsweek, GQ, The Washington Post, The Montel Williams Show, and many more. I'm so pleased to have you on the mar- on the show, Marsha. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So your area of expertise is communication. Um, I assume you work with people who practice monogamy as well as people in alternative forms of relationship, but... Since this is Leading Edge Love Radio, let's talk about how you came to coach people on ethical non-monogamy. <laughs> well,
1: um, I myself have been uh, ethically non-monogamous in various formats since sometime in the late 20th century, and um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I've been a relationship coach a lot, longer than, uh, a lot longer than I've been doing polyamory coaching and open relationship coaching. But what happened was I had been doing Cuddle Party and really working with people around communication in New York City, and then in 2008, I moved to California, and I thought I would move out here and do just general dating coaching, and my, apparently my reputation preceded me, uh, <laughs> both, both as the founder of Cuddle Party and as a coach, and also as somebody who uh, was open, non-monogamous in my personal life, had open relationships in my personal mm-hmm. life. And so I just had clients come out of the woodwork basically the second I landed in San Francisco and people were like, help. Mm. And I realized I landed in this, this place of magic and wonder where there's a whole lot of uh, non-monogamous folks trying to figure it out and supporting one another and
0: having all kinds of interesting adventures. And that was my introduction to the Bay Area. <laughs> well, that makes sense. Sounds like you landed in the right place.
1: <laughs> yeah. And through, so, um, through why you don't, work with colleagues, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say through the work with Cuddle Party and through the other workshops I used to do in New York, um, I really got exposed to such a broad array of d- different challenges people were having. And so it was really great to land here and to sort of be able to take and synthesize everything that I had learned in New York and start applying it here. Mm-hmm, great.
0: So for people who don't know, um, can you give us a brief description of what the Cuddle Party is? So it's a non-sexual workshop centered around
1: touch and communication. It's our belief that most people, especially those of us in North America are not getting enough touch. And the focus of the workshop is both to give people an opportunity to get touch, but more importantly, for them to learn the tools so that they can get that in their personal life, being able to ask what they want, say yes, say no, change their mind, and deal with their maybes. Because inevitably we've come
0: across circumstances where we're, we're not sure what we want. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that leads me to one of the questions I had for you is why do you think it's so hard for us to know what we want and then to ask for it? (laughs) I get that question all the time. And,
1: you know, I think there's a few pieces to why we don't know what we want and also to why we don't ask for it. So, First of all, you know, for a lot of us, we don't give ourselves permission and space to not know the answers. I think there's this belief that we should just know what we want, and if we don't know, then we, don't, we must not really want it. But I like to say desire doesn't speak English. So we have to actually, like, experience mm. things and try things and have experiences in our bodies before we can uh, actually move into being able to articulate it and talk about it and ask for it. So a lot mm-hmm. of times that might look like, an image or the a sensation or like we, a lot of times we have to have an encounter with it in some form or fashion before we know that, oh, that's the thing I want. And so mm-hmm. this is why it's really important to have safe spaces to try things where the consequences are not
0: dire, basically. <laughs> right. So, so cuddle party being a non-sexual workshop gives people a chance to practice different kinds of touch and, practice asking for what they want and don't want without um, going too far and traumatizing themselves, huh?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, all the things that come up in our sex lives, all the things that come up when we're sad or lonely or vulnerable in some other way, you know, those, those high stakes situations where it feels like there's something I want, I have to ask for it and I don't know how to navigate the situation. Cuddle party provides a place to practice the skills. So how do I actually take the sensation of my body and put it into words? What do I do if somebody says Mm -hmm. no to me? What do I do if I have to say no to somebody else? What do I do if I get what I want? Like that even, like Mm -hmm. learning how to receive is a skill as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've mentioned it a couple times on my prior episodes, but um, Human Awareness Institute or HI was very influential in my life. Um, as far as providing a laboratory for me to practice those kinds of interactions. And there is definitely more sexuality in there than cuddle parties. So it it definitely was edgy for me and gave me a lot of experiences with setting boundaries, saying no, um, asking for what I want, and then negotiating something in the middle. So I, I would imagine you help people with that negotiation, because what if something you want isn't what the other person wants to give you?
1: Yeah, I mean, our desires, just because we have our desires doesn't mean we get everything that we want. Learning how to have resilience around rejection or not getting what we want or and having creativity to find ways of getting the things we need and want uh, when it doesn't immediately seem available. I think that's one of the things I like about open relationships so much. It's not, it's not that I think everybody should be open, but I think that the skills that are involved in, figuring out how to think about our relationships creatively, thinking about how to ask for what we want such that the ask itself gets at the core thing and is not just a strategy for getting the thing we want. So a lot of us, we ask for, we say we're asking for what we want or what we need, but actually what we're doing is we're ask, we're saying the strategies that we're using to try to get those desires met uh, or fulfilled. And so, uh, I think one of the things I've really learned in my own personal practice of being non-monogamous is what's the thing underneath that's really the thing that matters and learning to ask for that and then
0: be creative about how we get there. Mm -hmm. Right, and I like what you said, developing resiliency around rejection. How do you teach people resiliency around rejection? Well, the first
1: thing is that a lot of times we we make no mean a lot of things that it doesn't mean. So we'll decide that Mm -hmm. if somebody says no to what I ask for, I'll decide that it means that I asked for the wrong thing or I'm not the right kind of person or I'm broken or any of those things, which is a lot of baggage to put on a no on one communication. Um, It's true that sometimes we're not a good fit for other people, but it doesn't mean that we're broken if that's the case. And it's also true that in many situations, there's a lot of things that do fit, and then there's some things that don't, and you have to figure out how to work with that. And you know, when we swallow our needs and we swallow our wants, um, it limits opportunities for intimacy with the other person. And so, putting something out there and actually getting the no is a more—it's certainly more vulnerable, but it's also more intimate, and it creates space to. Um assuming that the other person's not a jerk at least. <laughs> it creates opportunities mm-hmm. to at least be curious about one another and um go, okay, well that, that thing that you're expressing is, you know, not my thing. Um, uh, but I'm glad I know that about you. I feel closer to you. I can't do that for you. I can't give you that. But I'm glad that we are having this, this intimacy by sharing. I think another thing that people do is they jump straight to the negotiation too quickly. (laughs) Uh, And so there's this idea that, you know, our sexual, like, especially in the monogamous context, I think there's this idea that sex belongs to the relationship or it belongs to your partner. Like our sexuality belongs to our partners and our partner's sexuality belongs to us. And one of the things I really like about open relationships is it sort of forces some clarity around, wait, I had a sexuality and things I was into long before I ever met my partner. And those things are true about me. And so if I'm sharing them, if I'm saying, listen, I want to be tied up or I want to date this person in addition to you or I want to do butt stuff or whatever whatever your thing is, <laughs> that's been your interest your whole life, that was true before you met your partner a lot of the time. And you may not have had words for it because, again, desire doesn't speak English, but, you know, it. It's, it's your sexuality. And so really getting that, hey, I'm going to share something about myself, and let's, let's not even talk about if this is something that we're going to do together. Let's just share, like, what we're into. Let's share what we um, are curious about. Let's share what turns us on and gets us hot and bothered without making it mean, oh, now you have to do this for me or I have to do that for you. And so taking the decision-making mm-hmm. out of it and just sharing as
0: an act of intimacy is a really powerful practice. I love that. Yeah, taking the decision out of it and just sharing it as an act of intimacy. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and being a, a polyamorous person um, gives me an opportunity to ask uh, ask people out or ask other people if they if they're interested in me. And as a woman, I didn't flex that muscle very much growing up, so um, definitely had a lot of fear. Of rejection and had to had to practice that. And another area I had to practice it in was um, personal ad dating, um, because there's you, you have to go through lots and lots of people usually to find someone you meet that you want to date. And so you have to tell them like I like you, but I'm not looking for a friend right now, and I don't feel enough romantic connection with you to continue, you know, a relationship. So, I'm just going to say goodbye. And, you know, I had to practice doing that. And I found that the men Mm -hmm. really appreciated my honesty because so many women just ghost them and don't want to hurt their feelings and they just disappear. So, the men, most of the men really appreciated. My honesty and those that didn't, well, that just weeded them out anyway, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) um, It's like, why would,
1: okay, if I can't be honest with you on this level, why would I ever get into a relationship with you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. You just saved me a bunch of time. (laughs) Um, And I also found that when somebody, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And I also found that when somebody heard my no really well, then I could step toward them, and I kind of liked them more, and there, there was like, well, oh, maybe maybe I could be interested in you down the road. So can you talk a little bit about, because you specialize, your, your favorite thing is working with women and the people who love them, which is everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> but can you talk about some of the unique challenges that women have around communication, maybe the differences between men and women in open relationships? Yeah, so... The first thing I want to say
1: is that the the differences that I think a lot of people think are there between men and women in open relationships are often not the case. I mean, I, I think that um, men and women deal up with uh, rejection. They are dealing with vulnerability. They're dealing with am I hot enough? They're dealing with um, my desirable um, I, I see in my clients similar, you know, I think there's an idea that it's always the man that initiates this idea when there's a previously monogamous couple opening up. Um, and in my practice, it's, it's about 50-50 and it's about 50% of the women and 50% of the men are insecure about what's going on. And that part I think is, you know, I think there's a lot of beliefs that that's, you know, breaks down along gender lines in it, and it doesn't. That being said, there are differences in terms of um, what we're all bringing into these non-traditional relationships. Because once we've gotten out of the the box, you know, that starts to break down a lot more evenly along gender lines. But the stuff that we're bringing in, right, there's a lot of socialization that women have to be people pleasers, which is not to say that there are not men who are people pleasers because I absolutely get those as clients too, but there's this, Mm -hmm. cultural expectation on women as well that they'll take care of the emotions that they'll take care of, um, the man's feeling or the non or the masculine person's feelings. Um, there's, there's, uh, also what I find kind of what you were saying, like because of the socialization we get when we're younger, women don't have as much practice at asking for what they want. They don't have as much practice with saying a clean and clear. No, um, there's just a lot of like there's not as much practice even at setting clear boundaries. Like, yes, I want this, but not that. Because even admitting that you have a desire for sex is something that women are not encouraged to do and to have. And I find Mm -hmm. that as people spend more time in the non-monogamous world, a lot of that stuff that we think is a gender norm is, is that we're, you know, men and women are hardwired certain ways. There's certainly some differences that I think are hormonally based but a lot of the stories we have about how we're, quote, unquote, hardwired, I was like, nope, that's socialization. Because as soon as you put people in a situation where they don't have to conform, a lot of them don't have any interest in conforming in that anymore, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. I find that endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I also think that the, the non-monogamy world is so much more fluid in terms of sexual orientation Um, I read a survey once and I I wish I could give you the exact study. I don't remember it, but so I may get the number slightly wrong, but it was something like 8% of the general population at the time that the study was done considered themselves bisexual, but about 50% of the polyamory community considers themselves bisexual, which is a really interesting statistic when you look at, you know, oh, there's, It's not just that I have to figure out, as a woman, I have to figure out how to navigate my relationships with men. There's a lot more same-sex relationships that are happening as well. And that also breaks down these gendered expectations. So I find that to be really fascinating. And I've taken a lot of the things that I've learned uh, from the open relationship world and how women are navigating that and created a whole program called the Good Girl Recovery Program, uh, which I'll talk about more later, um, but that's really about, like, addressing the people-pleasing, the perfectionism, and the boundary issues that so many women have been socialized to just have, <laughs> basically. And I've, and I've learned through, these, through the open relationship community that it does not have to be that way. And so I'm really committed to bringing those tools because I think when women's desires are allowed to be front and center and they're celebrated and they're not shamed for it, everyone benefits from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the bisexuality thing because that's that's what I've found too. Is when I want to explore my bi curiosity and maybe exploring playing with women a little bit more, just a lot more fears come up around asking and being the assertive person who tries to make something happen. It it really is a muscle that that we have to build. Um, and I I've, I've I've I just talked to a man recently. Who said he got so much rejection through school, middle school and high school, that he just stopped even trying and, um, you know, focused on other interests in his life. And so even though he grew up to be a very, very tall, handsome, desirable man, he still has that kind of scared little boy inside. So I think that even we often project onto men that they're really good at asking and dealing with rejection, but they also feel scared and have old hurts to heal around it absolutely absolutely and I
1: think it's really unfortunate too because I think those scripts of he's supposed to know and he's supposed to always take the lead are really toxic and something that I found over and over again with my clients is how many of the men that I work with are just so boxed in by those stories like I'm supposed to just know how to do this and I don't, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, nothing. These are skills you have to learn. They're skills that everyone has to learn. Mm -hmm. Nobody's born knowing how to do this.
0: Right. And one of the biggest skills is just how to self-soothe because sometimes it does hurt and not everybody, like if somebody says no to you, um, we can try to flip it in our mind to say, well, thank you for taking care of yourself and really seeing it as a good thing that they spoke their truth and, being hearing no in a really good way is, is great. We all want to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean we aren't feeling a little bit zinged inside. And so to be able to manage those hurt feelings is also a skill. Totally. And the desire
1: is still there, right? The reason it hurts is because there's a desire there. And it's mm. easy to, to go into, oh, my desire is the wrong desire, or I will never get this desire met. And it's hard to know whether that's true or not because I don't have a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I do know, however, if you mm-hmm. don't put it out there again, you won't get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it is the right. thing. Like it hurts. And and yeah, self soothe is actually a great term for it because it hurts to not get what we want. And we are allowed to want it. Our desires are valid. It is important to remember that our desires are valid. And not just that, desire is persistent. Like Dan Savage said a thing recently, uh, we always think we're going to grow up and have sex, but in reality, sex has us. <laughs> like the desire mm-hmm. is going to have its way with us one way or another.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I, I noticed on your website that you um, you talk about pleasure, and I wanted to ask you while we're on the topic of gender. Um, Why is it hard for, why do you think it's hard for women to give ourselves permission to experience pleasure?
1: I think it's hard for everybody in our culture to give themselves permission to experience pleasure. And I think that the reason is that we're sort of expected to be sort of heads that float around unattached from our bodies. Uh, I blame Descartes Mm -hmm. and his whole, I think, therefore I am thing for this. But
0: um, Mm -hmm.
1: I, I, I do feel like uh, it's really hard for men and for women, but in different ways, because, again, the socialization is Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. I think we're really not encouraged to um, explore our sensuality. And by sensuality, I don't just mean sexuality. I literally mean, like, making ooh and ah noises when something feels good and, like, actually sort Mm -hmm. of surrendering to pleasure. Like, that is cut off for us, for most of us, By the time we're really little, we're taught to behave and not make weird noises and funny faces, right? And that (laughs) carries over because when we're really enjoying ourselves, we make weird noises and funny faces.
0: (laughs) And so (laughs) at a very
1: literal level, we don't allow ourselves pleasure. You know, we allow ourselves Mm -hmm. fun, but not pleasure. And fun is more a little bit more... Intellectual. It's a little bit more abstract. Pleasure is very sensual, it's very, very much based in the body, and it's super discouraged across the board. Um, and then you add on top of that the ways women are really discouraged from exploring their bodies, from having sexual desire, uh, from masturbating. You know, there's there's a lot of boys will be boys, and I I'm not saying there are not boys and men who have not been shamed for masturbating, and they absolutely are. Uh, plenty of them, and I, I have a lot of clients who are dealing with that on the male side of things too. And culturally, there's still more permission for men than for women to explore their bodies. Mm-hmm. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, the whole like, if she sleeps around, she's a slut. If he sl- if he sleeps around, he's a stud. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's there's some there's some big cultural problems we have around desire and around pleasure, <laughs> specifically. Uh, And and something that I learned from my mentor, Betty Martin, um, is to pick up an object, lean back in your chair like you're really relaxed, and slow your hands down and stroke it, close your eyes and stroke the object until you actually are feeling pleasure from it. Mm -hmm. And usually there's this phenomenon that happens where your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, you get really relaxed, you might lose the ability to speak. It's like petting a cat. And some of it's a mm-hmm. cat, but you can do that with an object if you actually let yourself and your specifically your nervous system enjoy it enough. It's a pretty remarkable mm-hmm. exercise. I recommend trying it.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you for that tip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have a really
0: nice water bottle here. I'll enjoy a little bit later. <laughs> water <laughs> bottles are fun. <laughs> Pretty much anything
1: but your phone will work. Our
0: phones, I think, are just a little too, we're
1: so used to holding them and, and not feeling them. So we use our hands as tools, yeah. but you can also use them as as vectors for pleasure, and it's a different skill.
0: <laughs> All right. Awesome. Okay, well, let's go back to the topic of open relationships. Um what do you think are the most common reasons people choose to to be open? Um, it's interesting.
1: I've noticed that it's, it seems to have changed a lot. So I've been doing some kind of open relationship coaching since about 2005, and I started doing it in earnest when I moved here to California in 2008. So I've sort of seen the arc of the last 10, 12 years. Um, it used to be that it was a lot of like, okay, well, we're monogamous and we've decided to open up. And now it seems to be a lot more people on their own are like, I want to have non-monogamous relationships. Let me go find other non-monogamous people. And there's a, there's been enough um, publicity and media and education that is starting to be easier for people, even not in the Bay Area, to find one another. Um, that being said, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of factors, um, you know, we're sexually creative and interested people, uh, and we want to figure out how to continue to have that. Um, some people are very emotionally open, and they have a lot of intimacy in their friendships. I know some people who are sexually monogamous, but they consider themselves polyamorous because the flavor of their in, their other intimate relationships is so much more in-depth and intense, and the polyamory framework just makes so much more sense to them um, than it would... than any other, like, they're like, I don't know that you can call what we're doing monogamy. And I'm like, I don't know that you can either. (laughs) It's certainly not a nuclear family model, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a bigger breakdown of the nuclear family. We're seeing the limitations of two parents and let's be together forever and all the pressures that uh, are sort of on relationships. Um, There's a lot of people who seem to be interested in having... um, Sexual experiences and sexual relationships and or, yes, just should say and or, <laughs> sexual experiences and or sexual relationships and or emotionally intimate relationships um, in part to help relieve the pressures of, okay, you're my one person and I rely on you for everything. Um, so there's curiosity about sex and enthusiasm for sex. I think that's a big part of it. I like what uh, Cunning Minx, who, who does the Polyamory Weekly podcast, says. Her, I think her tagline for the show yeah, is I just, actually.
0: It, I just interviewed her last week. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So her tagline, I think, is like, it's
1: not all about the sex, right? <laughs> right, so right, it's, right. It's not. it is about relationships. And sometimes we can get to talking about the relationships and then be like, no, well, it's about sex, too. And then other times people can be so fixated on the sex that they forget it's about relationships as well. For me, it's very much both. Uh, different people have different ratios of how much they're into both. But I do think there's a lot of pressure in relationships to sort of be the be all end all. And, um, and I think people are just getting really disenchanted with the nuclear family model. I mean, single, single households headed by a single adult are for the first time in American history, the most common kind of household. And I think that it's not surprising that that's happening right as open relationships and non-monogamy are rising. You know, we are Mm -hmm. finding new ways to combine um, with other people and making it work for us rather than
0: conforming to what we were handed.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I just want to bring up the point that um, sometimes people open their relationship because one of them wants less sex. So they want their partners to go out and get that need met somewhere else and quit pawing at them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's been a lot of uh
0: a lot of permission given
1: for people in mixed I, I should say mixed orientation or mixed libido relationships. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, maybe one person's kinky, one person's not, one person's bisexual, one person's not, uh one person has a high sex drive, the other person doesn't. And why should you have to blow up your entire relationship because these sexual needs are not overlapping? If everything else works, you know, especially if it works emotionally. Um, The other thing that's been interesting too is I've worked with clients is sometimes people think it's about the sex and it's actually not. It's actually about their touch needs not being met. And that's another interesting Mm. thing to look at because, you know, we've built this culture where sex and touch are collapsed together. And so then what ends up happening is the only people we ever get touch from are our romantic partners, are kids, maybe. But usually our kids are taking touch, not giving it. <laughs> and like our pets, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe one friend. Mm-hmm. And so if one partner is not very touchy-feely, the other partner might be really starved for that physical contact um, and it might have a romantic desire attached to it, or it might just be like, I just want to lay down and be held, and like, so my nervous system can calm down. And right. as people are sort of having the space to talk about open relationships, I'm, I've had some clients who come in and they, they're like, I think I want an open relationship. And when we get down into it, it's like, oh, you need cuddle buddies, or you need to be in sex positive spaces, but it doesn't, you don't actually want to be having sex with other people. You just want intimacy and affection and connection. So I think there is this tendency to just jump straight to the sex, which I am super for if that's your thing. (laughs) Um, And I like to open up space for what is really the motivation here? What's the thing you're really looking for and how can we help you get that?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a great answer. And there's another thing that I've noticed that my clients I primarily work with Um, Mature, midlife people who want to stay married but um, have a different sex drive or different needs. And one of the things I hear the men saying is that they miss having somebody who sees them, uh, looks up to them and um, sees them as a hero. If they've been married for, you know, 15, 20, 25 years, um, their wife sees them as just that same old guy, you know, um, so they, uh-huh. they miss having that feeling of somebody who really, like, wow, you're amazing. And I think men often get shamed for that desire um, to, ha- to be seen like that, and they're supposed to just suppress that. But surprisingly, a high number of men um, really thrive when a woman sees him as her hero. Absolutely. And I think it's true that people get shamed for that. I mean, we all want to be
1: seen as desirable, And desirable Mm -hmm. for the things that we value, right?
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) We want to be valued for being
1: pretty, if if we value being pretty or for being a hero or for being smart or whatever, uh, you know, for our ability to create an amazing experience for someone, like wow them. We all want that sort of, we want to be desired. And I I think especially with folks who are hitting kind of middle age or who are older, you know, that can be seen as vanity or shallow. And I don't think it is. I think that's sort of part of our self-conception. And I think it's, um, I think it's an important thing to pursue, honestly, whether it's the hero or the hot or the smart or the creative or whatever, or the funny, whatever your thing is. Like if your, if your partner's heard your jokes a million times, (laughs) you're probably (laughs) not going to be seen as that funny either. If that's the thing you value about yourself. And, Yeah, dating, I mean, even flirting, right? Like part of the fun of flirting is like that sense of possibility and you don't know what's going to happen, and that's harder to do in a long-term relationship. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, and those things, my my mature men clients often come to a tipping point in their life, either they've had a big birthday, like a, a 60th or a 70th birthday, or they've just recovered from a potentially fatal illness they've just gotten divorced or some major life thing has happened and they feel like, Oh my God, I, I've only got another 10, 15, 20 years to live and I don't want to go without this the rest of my life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that as well with my older clients, especially the men, uh, where it's like a big wake up call. It's like, uh, this is, Mm -hmm. this is not, this is not how I thought it was going to be. And I better do something about it. I'm not going to be here forever. Right.
0: So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. And we're speaking with communication expert Marsha Baczynski, or Marsha B, <laughs> if it's easier for you, um, and really enjoying the conversation about communication and open relationships um, I wanted to ask you why shouldn't people open their relationships? (laughs) So one of the things I
1: often say is that if you think that adding another person to your relationship is going to fix problems, that doesn't work whether it's having a baby or adding a new partner. Um, (laughs) The size of the person doesn't matter. we've all seen those couples who, like, everything's horrible. Let's have a baby. Maybe that'll fix it. And mm-hmm. then it's just a disaster. Right. I think mean, that's a mm-hmm. similar thing. If you're, you know, it's not, your relationship doesn't have to be perfect if you want to open up, but having basic levels of respect and communication and care and curiosity, I think is the other thing are, are necessary. Like I don't, I don't, even if I've been with you for 15 years, I don't actually know you. I don't know everything about you. There are things you don't even know about yourself yet. How could I know them? Um, and so I think having that curiosity and willingness to see your partner in a fresh light, uh, without, without it being threatening, it can be really valuable. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I would say if you're having problems, don't open it up thinking that's going to fix it. Uh, sometimes opening it up kicks the things to the surface enough that they can then get dealt with, but I've rarely seen it end well, uh, in those circumstances. Um, And then the other thing I would say is, like, I I think there's this idea that if we are going to open our relationship up, we should both be dating. And I like to talk about the difference between me monogamy and you monogamy, where you monogamy is I want you to be monogamous with me, and me monogamy is I want to be monogamous, and just because you, my partner, wants to be open doesn't mean that I have to do anything about that. I don't have to date people. I don't have to, like make my, put my, go on dates or, you know, respond to the person who's flirting with me at work or whatever if I don't want to. And so I think it's a Mm -hmm. bad idea to open up because your partner opens up. Like, even if the two of you decide Mm -hmm. that you're going to have an open relationship, does not mean both of you are not monogamous Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, I I used to get really irritated. Sort of. Sorry. No, No, go go ahead. ahead. I was going to say Um, I used to get irritated when I... I was in a relationship with a man that was married and um, I was trying to find other people to date. And it just seemed like I would date somebody and after a month they'd run off into monogamy land. And so sometimes I just give up and I wouldn't see anybody for a while. And my friends would go, are you being polyamorous these days? And I would say, well, you know, my partner has a wife and another lover and me. So I'm doing the hard part of it. <laughs> so don't say I'm not being polyamorous. because I'm the one that's having to deal with him having two other lovers. So um, it would irritate me when people would say that. <laughs> I wanted some kind of brownie points for managing being in love with somebody who was also married and had another lover. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it seems like it should work, right?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah.
1: So if if you are on the thing where we just don't know what our heart's going to want at any given time, and I do think that some people are more polyfidelitous, so they might have a partner and be dating around until they find the second person that they want to settle down with. (laughs) And that can be Mm -hmm. really confusing when that's not your style of poly or if you're more on the Mm – the open relationship side of things, or if your style of poly is more, um, quite frankly, open, right? Because just I I do want to make a clarification. There's this idea that open relationships and polyamorous relationships are the same thing, and they're Mm -hmm. not. You can be in a non-monogamous relationship that is closed. There are lots of closed Mm -hmm. triads and closed quads around. So it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. we found our other person, we're done dating. And for some Mm -hmm. people they like being non-monogamous, but they hate dating. <laughs> and mm-hmm. other people who are non-monogamous really like dating and they really like new, 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 new. Uh, but there are some people who are like, nope, I've got my two partners and I'm done. Like I never want to do any of that stuff again. And so style of non-monogamy really does matter <laughs> and it's important to sort for. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah, we have. Sometimes we have to go out there and mix it up and see what works before we even know what style we are. Totally. And that's what I try to help people shorten that duration of time of figuring out, so they're not stuck in the wrong relationship for six or seven years. <laughs> totally. So yeah, wanna, that can be the worst. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I want to ask you um, how how you teach people. One of the most common questions that we get when we tell people that we're non-monogamous is what? Don't you get jealous? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what do you (laughs) tell people?
1: Well, I think there's this idea that there is a perfect poly person out there who never gets jealous and always gets excited or happy or feels compersion when they're partners with someone else that, um, they're always up for whatever. And, uh, you know, that they always are in the mood for sex. Uh, let's see what else goes into the perfect poly person. Um, <laughs> you know, all of those things that it's just like, well, they're, they just never feel anything negative about it. And I have a few mm-hmm. comments on that one. I've been in this scene for a really long time. I've been interviewed for opening up. I've been cited in more than two. I've, and in the acknowledgements for the ethical slut. like i I know the authors of all the books, and and I've written my own ebook on it. We all get jealous. Jealousy is is not um, a problem necessarily. Uh, pervasive jealousy, jealousy that continues over time, jealousy that takes control of us and doesn't seem to ever let go. That's a problem. But feeling jealous, mm-hmm. feeling insecure, um, wondering about our place, and having Concerns about safety when there's something new going on or security that's not totally reasonable there's a lot you're playing around with vulnerable stuff, and I like to say that jealousy is a clue that one of two things is going on. I like to think of it as a smoke detector right to get out of a smoke mm-hmm. detector that goes off every time you cook, and that's not good that's not helpful it doesn't tell you that the house is on fire you start to Ignore that smoke detector, and there's problems because you don't have anything telling you, like, hey, you need to get out of the house when something's actually on fire. Mm
0: -hmm. And then you might
1: take the batteries out of that smoke detector and stop listening to it, and it (laughs) it stops working. (laughs) That's a bad situation, too. You don't want to not have jealousy. Mm
0: -hmm. What we
1: want is jealousy that shows up when there's something that actually you need to be jealous about or alarmed about Mm -hmm. might be a better word for it. Mm The problem Mm -hmm. is is we live in a monogamous culture that tells us anytime our partner shows interest in somebody else, it's a problem. So we have to learn not how to not be jealous, but how to tell when it's actually our spidey sense tingling that something's Mm -hmm. really off or, oh, this is just my cultural programming. Mm -hmm. And the first step to being able to do that is to accept that we're going to feel jealous and not make ourselves wrong for feeling jealous. And I really like Kathy Labriola's Jealousy Workbook. I think it's got a lot of fabulous exercises on what to do with the jealousy. Um, but, yeah, I've, I mean, of course we get jealous. Like, we we were turned on and we're afraid and, and we're, you know, angry and we we feel love and all these feelings are churning together in our stomach all at once, <laughs> uh yeah that's that's what jealousy is. It's a lot of different emotions sort of all at once, and there are people who will say, Oh, I don't get jealous and what I usually interpret that to mean is they've probably separated out what we would normally call jealousy into the into its constituent emotions. I feel insecure, mm-hmm. I feel wobbly um I feel sad, I feel weirdly turned on and also angry at the same time. <laughs> you know? And Mm -hmm. so they're just more nuanced in their feelings because jealousy is kind of an umbrella emotion. It's a lot safer to say I feel jealous than it does to say I feel scared you're going to leave me or Mm -hmm. I feel scared that I'm not good enough or I'm angry about how that went down. It's easier to say I'm jealous.
0: Right. And I've also seen the opposite where people don't want to admit they're jealous and they're acting out and they're acting all angry and vengeful, but because they can't really own, they're too proud to own that they are feeling jealous.
1: <laughs> I've seen that as well, yeah. That, that's, and that's where I feel like that's the perfect poly person script, right? Like we're all trying to be the perfect poly person. But that person doesn't exist. That person is a figment of our mm-hmm. imagination. And mm-hmm. the idea that we shouldn't feel jealousy, I think, is crazy talk. Yeah. I think it's appropriate to feel jealousy, mm-hmm. especially when you're trying something new and you don't know you don't have experience
0: with it yet to know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to add that monogamous people feel jealous all the time. I had a client that was monogamous and just wanted jealousy coaching. Um, yeah. You know, people can feel threatened in their relationship because there's a close work colleague or because they hug somebody longer than three seconds or <laughs> all kinds of things. Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. So my question for you is, do you think that compersion, first of all, define that for people that haven't heard that before, and then do you think it can be learned, and how would you teach it?
1: So compersion is the feeling of happiness or joy that you feel when you see your partner uh, having fun or enjoying themselves with somebody else, and that could be sexually or romantically or just sort of generally, like, you know, the, the feeling of my coworker got that promotion that I also to, and maybe I'm sad for myself, but I'm also really happy for them. That, that would be a sort mm-hmm. of more monogamous land version of compersion. Um, mm-hmm. I think we already feel it. I mean, I think people do feel it in non-romantic contexts, and so uh, it's learning that, I think we have to feel safe in order to feel compersion. And mm-hmm. until we undo this, until we get over our our toxic monogamy hangover <laughs> uh, of like, oh, if they like somebody else, they can't like me. That kind of thing. Um, it's really hard to feel. That said, I am cautious against the idea that compersion is a goal. So what I mean by that is, anytime we make feeling something a goal, we make other feelings wrong, and it's just a feeling. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to a client a while back, and he was just—he—he he never felt compersion about his wife being with her boyfriend. He's like, "I like him. I think it's fine. Sometimes I get wobbly, but I'm never excited about it." And I was like, "Do you think you should be?" He's like, "Yeah, I should be feeling compersion." I said, "Why? Like, you're not having a problem with it?" And who told you that meh was not an acceptable reaction? He was just like, a light bulb had just gone off where I was just like, oh, I could just be indifferent and that's fine too. And I was like, yes. You could just be like, I don't know, you're not that excited when your partner goes to work every day. I mean, maybe you're excited that they get bring a paycheck home. (laughs) Like, you could just be like, oh, this is a thing that's happening in his or her life. Okay. And is it toxic for them? No. Are they happy? Great. Awesome. Back to what I was doing. Like, you don't have to feel compersion, to be good at polyamory or 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 even happy, you know. It's just like so I am I am sort of a little wary of the idea of I should feel compersion or something's wrong. It's just a
0: feeling that you might feel sometimes. Right, right. And I also notice that the more honest and vulnerable I am, the more my heart is open to something like compersion. Uh, just from being, from kind of t- tearing down the walls around my heart and being real and being authentic to who I am and how I'm experiencing the moment, regardless of what that is, allows mm-hmm. me to be open to more love because I'm just open. Because that's what love is. It's,
1: it's that intimacy of sharing what's really going on, not performing a role of happiness.
0: Mm, thank you. That's beautiful. Yeah. So another, um, question, another comment that we often hear is, oh, I knew somebody that did open relationship. That doesn't work. Or um, I've heard about that, but that doesn't work, does it? Um, so what do you say to debunk that myth? Well, the first thing I say is a lot of times it doesn't work because
1: a lot of monogamous relationships don't work. I mean, that's just the truth about relationships. Like most monogamous relationships end. Like, think about all the people you dated until you got married, right? Like, all of those relationships ended. <laughs> um, so right. if the definition of success is it lasts until somebody dies, which is pretty much the monogamous definition. Somebody dies at the end, and that's how you know it was a successful <laughs> relationship, which I don't tie into <laughs> as a success. But that's pretty mm-hmm. much the monogamous definition. Like, it's successful if one of you kicks the bucket at the end and you don't leave each other before then. Mm-hmm. Um, so most relationships don't meet that criteria Um, and then the second thing I would say is we always hear about the disasters because people who are just quietly living their lives and are content don't really talk about it that much on the internet (laughs) or social media Um, they're just busy going to PTA meetings and soccer games and having threesomes and making brunch and you know going to church or whatever it is they do so you don't hear mm-hmm. about them, you know. I I've been lucky enough. I've been floored actually, in my years of doing this, at how many people I have met who might go to a conference. And it's like, oh, we've been poly for twelve years and we've never been to a conference before. I'm like, really? You know, what's that been like? Have you felt really isolated? No. Well, we just started doing this thing and it just worked. And I mean, we've had our ups and downs, just like any relationship, but. You know, we just don't talk about it with people. We just do our thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, they treat it like a monogamous relationship. Uh, I
0: mm-hmm.
1: I actually dated somebody once who, whose parents had hooked up with their best friends and all moved into a house together back in the 80s. And they were closed quad for 25 years. Wow. You know, and they, they didn't go to conferences. They didn't talk. There, I mean, there was no Internet. They were closeted, but they, you know, had it, and and then at some point, they split off into two, not the same two original couples, but they occasionally get together for holidays or whatever, Um, but that, you know, is that successful? Is that a failure? What's the goal? What's the intention? What are you trying to do? I have relationships, I have many relationships, I would say, that lasted between a year and a half and four years, and most of those people are still some of my closest friends, are those failures mm-hmm. or are they successes? Well, it depends on what your goals are. You know, if mm-hmm. I if I want people who are in my life forever, so far so good, if I want people to be, if I want to hate fucking them forever, maybe it's a failure. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They've got my back. We're really tight. I can call them when I'm having a problem and I need to talk or I need somebody to come over and cuddle with me because we're friends now. There's like four or five of those people in my life. Are those mm-hmm. successes Are those failures? Now, that said, you know, if people are throwing dishes at each other, that could be a problem.
0: (laughs) But I don't think that
1: something ending means it was a failure. And I don't think something lasting means it was a success. So I think it depends on what you want to get out of your relationships. You know, that saying of people come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime – a lot of people are walking around having really beautiful relationships Mm -hmm. with people that they used to be romantically involved with. And they don't talk about them because there's not a lot of drama. And the things we like to talk about are drama. Mm -hmm. But I would say that those are successful relationships. Right.
0: And it seems like non-monogamous people are more likely to stay in each other's lives when they transition than monogamous people are. Yeah, because you don't have to kick them out. <laughs> to make room mm-hmm. for the next one, <laughs> right?
1: You know, when you can actually keep people when you're when you're selecting people based on uh, the qualities that they have, rather than are you going to be my only and my always forever? Um, you can kind of appreciate them for the strengths that they bring, and uh, and also sort of like lovingly be like, wow, that aspect of them is not for me, but I'm not trying to be lovers with them and have a mortgage with them and raise children with
0: them and, you know, grow old together. So I don't have to deal with that part. Mm-hmm. So Marcia, can you talk about some of the past experiences you've had in your life um, maybe early on or not where, um, you know, things didn't go so well, you were in a non-monogamous relationship and things didn't go so well, but you learned a poignant lesson from it. So one of the people I was speaking of is my best friend,
1: uh, who I dated in college, and we were like, I was sort of trying to figure out if I was gonna, if I was actually bisexual because that wasn't a thing in Georgia in the '90s. It was just like, well, you're interested in women, you must be a lesbian. And I'm like, but I like boys too. Uh, so I was trying to figure that out, and the person, the person I was dating at the time was like, you know, maybe you should try dating some women. And I was like, okay. And it was very awkward. I went on a couple of dates. Nothing really happened, but that went well enough. And then we moved to New York City. And then, uh, then, oh, I remember what it was. So then we decided that um, we were really clear we weren't going to get married. We were really clear we loved each other, but we were clear, like, we weren't going to get married. And that was the script we were supposed to follow, right? You go to college, you find somebody – you fall in love, then you get married. And I was like, I really love you, and I want you in my life for a really long time, and I don't think we should get married. And then we kind of sat around and were like, does that mean we should break up? And sort of came to the conclusion that, yes, we should break up, and then we sort of came to the conclusion that stopping sleeping together seemed dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so then we... Uh, I think I went on a couple of dates with a couple of guys and and we had some moments of like E freaking out, but we technically were broken up, so it was okay like you know you make these arbitrary distinctions like that means anything about your feelings um mm-hmm. and and we we kind of made it work for like two and a half years, and then this he started dating this woman, and he just was like dated her and was just like. Yeah, so, and this is my friend Marcia. and we have sex sometimes, and, like, he just kind of went into it thinking that would be totally acceptable to her, <laughs> and she freaked <laughs> out. She had no context for any of this, <laughs> and I have been dabbling around with, like, people kind of in the kink scene who are, like, sort of versed in polyamory a little bit. Like, it didn't seem crazy, so I think he thought it was going to be the same experience for him, and it just super was not.
0: <laughs> anyway, they ended up dating
1: for like six years, and it was—it ended up being a disaster for other reasons. But um, yeah, I think there's this sort of—you want it to go well initially, but you can also get lulled into a false sense of security if it goes well at first. Uh,
0: yeah, because well, there, there was—I really, think we were both you Yeah, go ahead. There were there were a lot of a lot of nuggets in in your story as far as the arbitrary labels that we put on things, and and it just shows us that that we really can design the life and the relationships that we want now, and we're blessed to be living in a location and a time where we can do that. Um, I I do want to acknowledge that we're about out of time, and I want to, the time just flew. It was so wonderful speaking with you, Marsha. Oh, so great. And, um, yeah, and I want to give you time to tell people how they can reach you, could um, talk a little bit more about your upcoming workshops, and I believe you also have a a gift or an offer for our listeners. So take it from I do. There. I have
1: a lot of great stuff. Uh, so you can find me online at want dot com, or on social media. Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram. Ask Marsha B. M a r c i a letter B. And um, so that Instagram and want dot com. I teach a weekend intensive with Midori called Make Hot Play Happen. Our next one is in New York City in October. So you can go to makehotplayhappen.com or just go, everything's on com, So you can go there as well. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. uh, I have a, I have a free ebook if people would like to download that called Good Girl Gone Bad. And it's about the clues that keep you, uh, clues, it's clues that the good girl is keeping you kind of tightly bound into this perfectionism, people-pleasing and not setting boundaries thing and what to do about it so you can go to goodgirlrecovery.com and download that for free uh guys feel free to download it as well you'll hear about uh different things for that program if you download that i'll be teaching that again in october it's going to be a six-week course starting in october so um you can check that out there and uh Yeah, come find me on Instagram. Come find me on Twitter. Same handle, B. or sign up for my newsletter on either site. And uh, there's a lot of other stuff. You can check my events calendar. for. I'm doing several events in the Bay Area in August. I've got a cuddle party coming up in September. So there's a
0: lot of stuff you can find me and meet me in person if you want. Great. Okay, Marsha, well, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for the work that you do. You really are making the world a better place. And it was just delightful to speak with you. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, this was wonderful. It was
0: really great. Okay, good. We'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.